Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Our podcast is brought to you by That's the Sum Pizza. Using a 120-year-old starter from the Klondike Gold Rush, they make unique sourdough crusts that can't be found anywhere else in the world. That's the Sun Pizza also delivers wine and beer. Call 206-842-2292, order online at thatsthesum.com, or download That's the Sun Pizza app on Android and iOS. Congratulations to the team of Alan Raymond and Will Grant, who brought home the first place trophy from the recent Caputo Cup at the Pizza and Pasta Show in Atlantic City. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Bystander Podcast. Today I have Kirsten Jewell. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good. What um, is crack-a-lacking here with the homelessness here in the state of Washington? I heard that we're, we have about the third most homeless people in the United States now. It's something that's dear to my heart. Um, living on the island here, I always go with my child over to the, to the city and when we get off the ferry there's just a plethora of not only homeless people and people asking for change there's tents now visibly on the sidewalks of the inner city everywhere and it has gotten to a proportion that is really making people notice it 
I lived in Seattle for a long time, and there's vacant lots, and there was drug use, and then came a, a little paper called Real Change that uh, was kind of, besides the Union Gospel Mission and the Compass Center, a couple places like that, Millionaire's Club, there wasn't many resources for the homeless, and it seems like there's a, a, a lot of resources for the homeless now, and you know, with the weather and the programs, that it's almost becoming easier, and I, I use that in in a in the wrong sense of the term, but it's easier for more people to come here and be homeless than other places where the weather's really severe, and that there's not the opportunity to get into these types of programs. But there's a huge debate on wh what way we're, we're going in the future and how funds are handled and resources and shelters and mental health. It, it's in everybody's face now, much more so than when I was a kid 30 years ago, growing up in, in Seattle. Um, you know, it's kind of my adult life, not my kid life. I'm a little older than that. Um, but it's in your face problem. And you're one of those leaders that is taken it on and have taken it on for a long period of time. How do you see the future of homelessness shaping up in the state of Washington? Great question. Something that I think about a lot. Um, and <clears throat> of course, what you just said had a lot of things come up for me. Um, I think it's important to remember that the biggest contributing factor to homelessness is the disparity between income that people are earning and the cost of housing. So one of the reasons why we're seeing the West Coast uh, have such a explosion of people experiencing homelessness is because we are having so much prosperity. And prosperity often creates more disparity. And so with that prosperity, the cost of housing has skyrocketed. And that's awesome for people who can afford it. But for many people, their incomes have not kept pace with the cost of housing. And those folks, uh, many of whom were successfully, happily, stably housed a few years ago, when their apartment building decides to renovate and upgrade, their rents go up a couple hundred dollars, and that's just far more than they can afford, and they get displaced. And then there's no place for them to go because there's nothing really that's affordable. So where I see the future um, is complicated because we're really behind as a state in the production of affordable housing units or even housing units overall. Uh, the estimates that I've heard are that in 2016, 2017, we had somewhere around 80,000 people move to our state. And we only produced something like 25,000 units of housing collectively. And that's in all housing, not just housing that's affordable for people with low incomes. So we're just seeing this huge squeeze and crunch uh, of just not having enough housing units. And I think what's going to need to happen is that as a society and as a culture, and particularly here on the left coast, we're going to need to kind of think about how we envision appropriate housing differently. 
I mean, there was a time in our country's history where it was very common for multi-generations to live together. And we kind of, the pendulum swung the other way, and we went to a situation now where we have these enormous houses with few people living in them, like 2,000 square feet per person, you know. And I think because we just have a shortage of housing and not uh, really the capacity to catch up really quickly, we're going to see situations where more and more people are having their parents live with them and having their kids live with them. I mean, I have two teenage daughters and I don't see how they're going to be able to afford housing because there really aren't starter houses anymore or even really starter apartments so much. Um, So in college, I fully anticipate that many, many of these young people are going to need to come and live at home for a while because they simply can't have incomes when they're starting out that's going to be able to afford to pay for even the least expensive housing. What is the medium housing price across the whole state, do you know? I don't know the I don't know what that is. And I think it's a difficult question if you look if you took an average for the state, it wouldn't really factor in, you know, really really high prices in Seattle versus, really you know, rural. rural really rural areas on the east the you know the the east side of the state. I mean, I'm and I'm much more familiar with rental rates just because of the work that I do, we tend to be focused more on getting people into rental properties and I can tell you that the, you know, the average rent in Kitsap County has gone up about $300 in the last three years. And I think it's sitting right around $1,250-ish uh, for the average rent for a two-bedroom apartment in Kitsap County right now. Yeah, I think people would be happy with that rent here on the island. Cause right, and that's... Totally just proportionate to that. Right. And that's why it's difficult to take a like even a regional approach or a countywide approach. Um, and, you know, when you're thinking about it, too, you, you have to look at what the, the incomes vary as well. So people, you know, when there's more expensive housing, then often jobs pay a little bit more. And so the cost of living is different. And so it's, it, it's anyway, it's very difficult to look at a statewide average or even a countywide average. What's the situation with um, rent control? Um, rentals. Yeah, I was just talking to somebody about rent control yesterday, and uh, I'm not an expert in this. My understanding is that really, we only have rent control that's been around for very long in three cities in the country. I think San Francisco, New York, and somebody said someplace in New Jersey or something. So it doesn't seem like a model that has caught fire. <laughs> like it's not like a lot of communities are saying, yeah, let's adopt rent control. I think it has a lot of political challenges. Um, and I'm not sure it's the right answer. I don't, I don't, Is there a difference between I, I mean, you know, San Francisco has rent control and they also still have a huge problem with people experiencing homelessness. So clearly it hasn't like, it hasn't addressed that particular problem. Is there a difference between low income housing and rent control? Well, low-income housing, so first of all, let me say, um, when we say affordable housing, we typically mean housing that doesn't require somebody to spend more than 30% of their income on their housing cost. So it's a little bit variable. Um, People in the lowest income brackets uh, end up paying a little bit more, Um, but generally... um, Subsidized housing can either be housing that's owned by a nonprofit or government entity like a housing authority, um, and they're 
because they got grants or tax credits or loans to to construct the housing, so they are able to charge less to the people who are li- who are living there. Um, I'm not again. I'm not an expert on rent control. I think rent control is different because it limits the amount that private market landlords can increase the rent across the board. It doesn't discriminate for for incomes or cost of living or anything like that. So, what kind of capacity? I'm kind of unfamiliar with um, your job and and what your title is and and what do you do? Can you can you tell us a little bit about um, your involvement? Absolutely. Um, so I work for the Kitsap County Department of Human Services, and uh, our division is the Housing and Homelessness Division. We have four primary roles um, on a countywide basis. So we don't have, you know, the city of Bainbridge Island and the city of Paulsbo don't have separate their own separate homeless divisions. The, the countywide one kind of serves all of the jurisdictions. Um, we do the strategic planning across the county, um, and we have a homeless housing plan, um, which outlines the goals, strategies, and actions that we think as a community that we need to take to address homelessness. Um, and we develop that with a whole bunch of stake- stakeholder input and workshops and surveys and all that kind of thing. Um, the second thing that we do is we administer a bunch of um, state and local grant funding for homelessness and affordable housing projects. Um, we distribute about $2.5 million a year in the community that we contract with different social service organizations all across the county to provide Everything from emergency shelters to job training for people experiencing homelessness to domestic violence shelters to permanent housing for people with severe persistent mental health issues. I mean, we have a huge portfolio that we fund um, because there's a whole bunch of different needs. <clears throat> yeah, there's multiple reasons why people right. are homeless. Right. And, and we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Different, different degrees yeah. of homelessness, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so let me just quickly finish. So the the so we we make these community investments, and then we do a lot of data reporting and kind of analysis of results of how that how well that money is being spent, and 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 kind of what it's doing for the community, what the community impact is. Um, and then the fourth thing that we do is we coordinate different community projects around homelessness. So, for example, for the last three years, we've been working with a group specifically on veteran homelessness. And recently, we just launched a task force on youth homelessness um, and juvenile justice. So we just sort of coordinate special projects that bring together different stakeholders who are working on particular aspects of homelessness. And so that's what my job is. So you've been doing this job 10 plus years so? Yeah, today is like my 14-year anniversary. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> How has the goals of your organization changed over that period of time? I know that you just talked about a shift from veterans <laughs> to youth homelessness. What are the major um, changes? Yeah. Happened? Well, the program really started back in 2002 when the Washington State Legislature first decided to be really um, act proactive and pioneering, and they passed some legislation that provided a little bit of funding for affordable housing projects. And then they followed this up in 2005 with a pretty landmark piece of legislation that provided additional funding and had the ambitious goal of reducing homelessness in every county by 15, by 50% within 10 years. Like that was the stated legislative goal. We're going to reduce homelessness by 50% in 10 years by 2015. Um, and I think at the time, you know, it's been really interesting to kind of like 
grow up while all of this has been happening. I, I, I started this work before that legislation was passed. And we didn't have a lot of research about homelessness. We didn't really understand the causes of it in any kind of, you know, d- data related way. We didn't have evidence about it. We anecdotally knew a lot of people were homeless. We didn't really understand the causes and what the best ways to help people out of it were. And that, um, so we started out with this sort of like really broad goal of let's reduce homelessness. And I think what's happened over the last 10 to 15, you know, 14 years or so is that we've, we've had the benefit of a lot of experience and a lot of specific research has been done. A lot of things have been tried. So we have much more specific goals around homelessness now. We don't really talk about ending homelessness anymore because we recognize that there are all these economic and social factors that push people into homelessness. So you're never going to have a situation where there's nobody who's going to become homeless. But what we can do is we can try to get to what we call functional zero. And functional zero is the situation where as soon as somebody is uh, displaced from their home, there is immediately resources to help them get back into stable housing and eventually self-sufficiency again and, you know, permanent housing if that's what's appropriate. We're getting ever closer. We, We are working hard to have the array of services that people need. So shelter immediately when people um, are displaced and then resources to help them overcome whatever barriers they had that or challenges they had that created that, that displacement. But, um, you know, it costs money to help every person and, uh, we've really struggled. We feel like we know what we need to do, but we haven't had the resources to be able to do it. And that's, that's frustrating. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the resources get stretched every year because the population grows. And with population growth, there has to be growth of homelessness. Right. How, besides grants, what are your main um, resources to get more money for this cause? The programs that we manage at the county are, are really um, based on legislative action. And in fact, I'm so excited. I, I can't the, the Washington State Legislature um, in this legislative session passed a package of seven bills that are a whole new world in providing resources for homelessness and affordable housing. And they've expanded eligibility for programs. Um, they've incentivized development of affordable housing. They've provided increased funding for homeless programs. And all of this just happened in the last two days. And so I think, I know I am and my colleagues all across the state are still trying to wrap our heads around, okay, what, what does all this mean? And how do we bring this to bear? And how do we most effectively and efficiently invest these new resources and use these new tools that we have to address homelessness? To get back to your question, though, I think the, um, almost every project that we fund or or partner with a social service organization to do, we are not 100% of their funding. They typically get funding from private donations, fundraisers, um, other uh, other government grants, maybe some federal grants. Um, and every organization that I know that's doing this work is stretched to the absolute maximum. They are working on a shoestring budget 
nobody gets into this work for the fame or the glory or the money. And it really relies on just these incredibly compassionate and thoughtful and caring organizations and boards and individuals who are doing the work. Um, and it's one of the things that I love about this job is I got to work with all these fantastic organizations and people. Is that really satisfying to you? Absolutely. I mean, it's hard. I, I call it hard work, good work. You know, I mean, we, we get to go to work every day and it's hard and it's challenging, but we get to feel like maybe in some small way we're making the world a little bit better for people. Um, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a mid-level bureaucrat, really, if you look at it. And I push papers and go to meetings. and um, But every one of these little cogs that is needed to ultimately result in the ability for somebody to walk into one of our social service organizations and have the resources available to help them, there's a ton of other work that's gone on behind that to make sure that that can happen. When we talk about um, making homeless rare. What does that mean to you? Uh, we want to try to make it so that as few people as possible experience homelessness. Um, and that I think is, you know, we, we try to do that through prevention. Um, we have programs that help folks who uh, have eviction notices or are experiencing household instability, try to keep them in their housing as much as possible because that's the best possible stable solution for them to not get displaced at all in the first place. I think if you want to look at the larger picture, though, it's a complicated thing because, as I talked about earlier, the social factors that kind of push people into displacement and push people into homelessness, if we really want to make homelessness rare, you know, as a society, we need to decide that we're going to pay people a living wage and we need to decide that we're going to make sure that there are mental health facilities available and resources available for everybody who needs it. We need to address domestic violence seriously if we want to avoid that being a reason for people getting displaced. We need to improve our education systems. I mean, I, I could go on and on and on and on. Like all of the social ills, you know, that you that you think about, many, many, many of these are contributors to people losing their housing or not having enough money to pay for housing. And so I believe that as a society, if we decided, if we had the political will, if we said our number one priority in our country, in our state, in our county is to make sure that nobody experiences homelessness, we could do it. Absolutely, we could do it. But that would require a really big tectonic shift in how we allocate our resources and the kinds of things that we prioritize. Wow, millions of things are coming to my <laughs> mind right now. But I, I think number one <laughs> is how do you, if you're going to make homelessness rare and prevention is a big part of it, what are the identifying markers? You know, you talked about eviction. How do I know John Doe is getting evicted and how do I know that I can reach out to that person uh, before it spirals down? That's a, such a good question. And and one of the things that we really wrestle with, I mean, we are really focused on trying to invest these very scarce and precious public funds as best we can. And with prevention, it's really hard to measure the absence of something. So it's hard to know when what you've done has been the thing that has made somebody not become homeless because we don't have a way to know. Um, we pretty much are able to help people only if they step forward and say, I need help. I mean, in a perfect world, homelessness and housing instability and poverty wouldn't be so stigmatized. Um, people would be okay to step forward and say, I need a little bit of help right now. 
uh, right now, it's often very difficult for people to admit that they need help. Um, and I think that that's a big barrier. Um, we also really work hard to try to target our prevention many. Like I said, we want to use it as efficiently and like with the best outcome possible. Yeah, you so, don't want to just put cash on fire. And- right. So we try to figure out of the people stepping forward and saying, we need help with, you know, eviction prevention. What In what cases is this going to make the biggest difference for people? In what cases are these folks the least able to help themselves or the most vulnerable or the ones who really don't have other resources to, to get help out of this situation? Um, and so some of what we do is try to identify what we think is going to be the best possible assistance for somebody. Sometimes that isn't cash assistance. Sometimes that's debt counseling or, you know, helping people get connected with other resources like childcare or, you know, something else that's going to help them figure out how to make a plan to get out of the situation. Because we can give people, you know, funding to get out of this situation of a possible eviction, but the long-term goal is to make sure that they never get in that situation again. And so what are the resources, what are the challenges that got them into that situation in the first place? And how do we figure out how to help them get what they need to not be in that situation again. So I'm, I'm pretty aware of homeless people uh, living in Belltown for a long time, over a decade. I can tell whether somebody has mental illness, has drug abuse, or is semi-down on their luck and just lost something recently, or they had a tragedy in their life. What is the best way... You know, because a lot of people don't have that radar going on. Just uh, homeless people are homeless people. They're dirty. They're scummy. Um, I'm going to look the other way. I don't want to give them money because they're just going to use drugs. They kind of blanket um, their thought process around homelessness. How can I make a difference as an individual when I see somebody homeless in a supportive manner? Like, yeah, here's... I think it starts with the conversation, you know, why do you think you're here? Um, what do you need? How can I help? Something like that. In your professional opinion, average Joe Blow on the street, how, how can I help them individually, myself? Great question. Um, I There's a lot of different levels of answers. Um, yeah, I, I think... Many, many people who are experiencing homelessness, especially people who have experienced it for a long time, feel very much on the outside of society. They feel unseen. They don't have connection with people. They are ignored. Um, Many people walking by on the street won't even make eye contact. Um, They feel marginalized and alone. And I think one of the best things that we can do is simply treat everybody we come across as a, you know, a human being who's worthy of our respect and with dignity. Yeah. I mean, look people in the eye, give them a smile. I I, I go over to Seattle all the time and, you know, there's plenty of folks hanging out under the under the walkway off the ferry or at the end of the way. I just try to like look everybody in the eye and smile and say, hi, how's it going? That might be, I might be the only person who does that that day which is crazy, but it's true. I feel like so much of what it is is calling on us to get rid of our prejudices and and our assumptions about who these other people are. Um, 
Hey, rest, the, in, rest in peace, Jonas. Um, Jonas was a guy that just yeah. Yeah. recently died, and he um, was at the end of the ferry terminal on Seattle, and he he hawked smiles. Yeah, and he made I remember sure him. That he, you know, looked people in the eye, and he was the homeless one. Right. Yeah, so, I remember him. He was incredible, and I think if more people had that homeless person's attitude, we would recognize respect and show dignity to everybody. Yeah, and I I just want to say too that, um, geez, if if living outside doesn't cause you to have some kind of mental illness, you're you're an unusual person. I mean, it is really difficult to live in that way and not try to do things that help you escape or help you cope. Um, I think a lot of people self medicate. Yeah, sure. um, they're trying to escape the awfulness of their freezing cold you know, somewhat hopeless life. And so I, I feel like if we can come at it with a, a lot of compassion and say, no, nobody, nobody grows up and nobody as a kid says, I want to be homeless when I grow up. That's what I want. I hear a lot of people say, oh, people are making bad choices. And I think that is not taking into account that sometimes the choices that people have, none of them are really good choices. They're making the best choice they can at the time based on what they've got to choose from. But sometimes if you've grown up in poverty your whole life, if you were a kid who was moving around all the time because your family was in and out of homelessness and you didn't get to stay in school, and I mean, divorce. you know, divorce, family breakup, physical difficulty, you know, physical um, health issues, like you don't always have the choices that we are wish that people had. And so I think just coming at it from the sense of compassion of, I don't know this person's story. I don't know why they're, you know, having to live this life outside. I know that that's they would not choose to live outside if there was a choice other than that available to them. Um, I think that's really one of the best things that we can do. And then just on a practical level, um, I uh, in my car, I just keep some granola bars and a little flyer of how people can get access to resources. And I'll hand that out to folks. If I see somebody on the side of the road or the street or something, I'll just say, hey, you know, have a great day. And again, just making connection, not necessarily giving them, you know, a short term fix, but here's some resources. And if you want help, there's help available. Sometimes that works. Sometimes people aren't ready to do that. Sometimes people have had really bad experiences with social service organizations in the past, and they're very wary of them or you know, I was talking to this one veteran down at the Salvation Army, and I, I said, you know, I listened to his story, and I sounded to me like he was eligible for some veteran uh, assistance. And I said, hey, you know, can I take you over to the veteran's office, and maybe we can see about getting you some help? And he's just like, oh, no, 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 no. I've had such a bad experience with the VA. I'm never going back there. And I said, oh, no, no, this isn't the VA. He's like, yeah, no, no, I'm not going back. So it's like bad experience with one agency had made him sour on any kind of government veteran benefit. So just an example, I think sometimes um, people are, you know, have reasons why they don't want to take advantage of the resources that we think well, they especially should. Especially veterans like Vietnam War and the Agent Orange and there's so many factors like they, they went to war at 18 or 19 with no real life skills in a war they that we never should have had in the first place. And then getting reintroduced to society as a veteran, there were struggles there. I've heard a million horror stories about the VA. Why is it so difficult? I don't want to just 
land-based the whole government. <laughs> but um, to get these veterans that we sent in this horrible condition, opportunity to be retrained, and even even veterans nowadays in the modern era, and uh, help help them manage through these systems because I feel like some of these homeless veterans go to the VA and try to get medical and services and stuff like that. And what you just said is a very, very common response from veterans. And then you see them on the street, please give veteran. Like they are completely attached to this war, you know, 30, 40 years ago or whenever. Um, And it's a crutch. It's not enabling them, but yet we ask them to defend our country and to be in that situation and then we don't continue to yeah. give them support and a lot of them wind up homeless and then when you when you start to self-medicate it's almost a situation especially mental illness it's easier to get a drug on the street than it is to get a doctor to help with the mental illness and prescribe medication yeah. and then well, that's not going to help <laughs> we could go down a long rabbit hole um, I mean, I don't. What are, yeah. the, what are the struggles here? Why can't we support our VAs? I know you guys had a program recently. Last couple of years was one of your goals was to eliminate veteran homelessness in Bremerton, which is a military community, really. Yeah, I, I can't begin to defend or even understand the machinations of the VA and federal veteran benefits. I mean, it's it's labyrinthine, labyrinthine. Anyway, it's. I don't understand why it's so difficult to make that system work. Um, it's frustrating as I'll get out to have veterans who shouldn't have to have such a hard time getting access to resources. Um, what what we did in Bremerton, which was in, in, for all of the county, in fact, which was really exciting. It was an initiative called, um, we called it Homes for All Who Served in Kitsap County. And it was an initiative to really focus in tightly on eliminating veteran homelessness or making functional zero for veterans. Um, functional zero mean? Great. Great question. So functional zero is sort of the recognition that we're never going to say that we've ended homelessness because we have all these socioeconomic factors that are pushing people into homelessness. But what we can do is we can get to a place where the minute that a veteran is experiencing homelessness or anybody's experiencing homelessness, we immediately have the resources to get them into a shelter and then into stable housing, whatever stable housing is appropriate for them. So we had this goal of having functional zero for veterans. And so we brought together for the very first time the federal, state, and local, private, and governmental entities that were all working uh, on veteran housing. And we got everybody together in the same room for the first time. And we said, hey, let's work together in a way that we've never done that before. And we had monthly meetings. Um, We had really great leadership from Mayor Lent of the city of Bremerton. Um, And we identified what the gaps and challenges were. And we designed a couple of specific projects that would try to fill those gaps. Um, And we worked in a really focused way, built relationships between these organizations so that they were talking to each other and doing a better job communicating about the veterans that they were trying to help. Um, And we actually accomplished our goal of functional zero for unsheltered veterans. So we got part of the way there. Um, We currently have the resources for any veteran who is living outside 
they can get an offer of getting into a shelter right away um, and uh, getting on their way back to stable housing. We weren't able to declare 100% victory in this because we just simply don't have enough units of housing that's affordable for veterans. So we couldn't say we have functional zero for all veterans. We can get everybody into a shelter, but beyond the shelter, we need more resources to try to help those veterans get into permanent stable housing. One of the other goals that we had was to try to get more of those resources to pay for veteran housing. And they come in the form of what's called VASH vouchers. These are veterans assistance supported housing vouchers. They function kind of like a section eight voucher or housing choice voucher. And, but they're specifically for veterans. We worked for a long time to try to get um, some additional VASH vouchers. And just last week we got an announcement that we had been awarded 22 more VASH vouchers, which is huge. We have 45 right now. And so to get 22 more is a really, really big deal. So we're excited about maybe this will be what pushes us over the edge to be able to declare that functional zero for, for all veterans. Now, is that like what you term uh, brief homelessness, that little transition there? Right. So we want um, veterans to be homeless for less than a day if possible. I mean, functionally, it doesn't always happen like that because they um, – need to find out about the resources that are available. And we try to do outreach to veterans as well. But yeah, brief means short amount of as short amount of time as possible, living outside or on the street or in a place not meant for human habitation. And then as short a time as possible in a shelter too, because we don't want people living in shelters. Shelters are supposed to be these short little landing place while we figure out how to get you the resources that you particularly need to become stably housed. So we want to get people out of those shelters and into stable housing. And stable housing comes in a couple of different forms. The best case scenario is housing where you can support yourself. You have enough income to support that housing. A lot of people need a little rental subsidy to help them get over these barriers or these challenges or the crisis. And we offer a graduated subsidy for folks who we can see a trajectory for them to improve their income or increase their income or increase their situation or qualify for benefits. So they get this sort of short graduated subsidy, six to 12 months. Um, Some folks have really severe persistent behavioral health issues, uh, mental health issues or physical disability or might be somebody who's on a fixed income because they're older or have a permanent disability. Uh, we need to get them into some kind of housing situation that provides a permanent subsidy for them. They they are never going to be able to have more income. So we need to help support them into that stable housing with a permanent subsidized situation. Now, is there shelter limits? Like you can only stay in a shelter for X amount of time or is there a do you guys manage it? Like, here's a 30-day plan, a 14-day plan, depending on how you categorize the person who is homeless? Yeah, it's a good question. There used to be, um, well, first of all, all of our, you know, we have a number of different shelters, and they're all operated by individual, nonprofit, faith-based, some faith-based, some not faith-based organizations. And so they all have their real, their own ways of operating them, um, and they have their own rules around things. From the state and county perspective, we used to have reg- rules that said that people couldn't stay in shelter for more than 90 days. Like th- three months was the maximum amount of time that people could stay in shelter. And at the same time, we wanted 
agencies that we're funding to try to reduce the amount of time that people are spending in shelter. We don't want people there for 90 days. We want them there for 20 days. Um, recently, about a year ago, the state um, removed that restriction. They said it's okay for people to stay in shelter for longer than 90 days. And part of this was because of the recognition that it's so difficult to find housing out in the private market that we don't want to discharge somebody after 90 days back into homelessness because they, they can't find an apartment because our housing market's so crazy. So they said, you know, as long as sort of as long as people are working on housing stability plans, people can stay more than 90 days if that seems appropriate. Um, we are we have a you know, we have a target number of days that people we want people to stay in housing for as short amount of time as possible. Um, in 2017, the average number of days that somebody stayed in emergency shelter in Kitsap County was 48 days. We'd like to get that down to, you know, as, as short a time as possible, because that means that more people can then access the shelter beds. We can use them for helping more different people. Plus, it doesn't um, absorb all the funding. You know, if somebody's just sitting there on a free ride for the whole time, that takes away funding from other people, and you can make a broader reach. Yeah. And I, you know, I hesitate to call it a free ride. It's, it's hard to live in a shelter. I mean, you know, I, I, yeah, I know I totally, I just, uh, you know, living in a shelter is, is difficult. Um, you're in a, usually in a a room, a a room or a couple of rooms, you're sharing bunk beds with a bunch of other people. It's noisy. There's a lot of people with big challenges and issues around you. I don't really think most people want to stay in a shelter, you know, very longer than they absolutely have to. But the alternative is on the street. Of course, that's a good choice. And and I will say that there are some people that we come across who are living outside, and we, you know, they're offered a shelter bed, and they say, "No, thank you. I the shelter life, living in that shelter situation, is not for me. I would not do well there. That's not what I want. I'm." I'm better off living on my own outside. So there's, there's not the confrontation of other people with mental illness. Exactly. Yeah. So so you know it's funny because often people get criticized for making a choice to be outside and I think it's important to recognize again that that if if the choice is living in a shelter or living outside, I can see why some people would choose outside. If the choice was outside a shelter or living in an apartment, and having a job that could pay for that apartment, I think everybody would choose the living in an apartment and having a job that could pay for it. But that's often not a choice that we're able to offer them because we don't have the, the housing units to do that. Yeah, shout out to Michael. I, I know a guy who, I, in all, all honesty, I feel like he's completely homeless and been homeless 10 years. But he has a little shack in the woods and he does not think he's homeless at all. That's his home. And... He functions. He gets jobs here and there, but um, he suffers from multi, multiple personalities, and he just feels more comfortable on his own in the woods, in just this little rustic shack. With yeah, it's, it's horrible in my eyes, but he's content and at peace. And and if people aren't bothering him, and he's not bothering other people, then. What's the problem? Yeah. I mean, I, he has I, some mental illnesses, but he's not a drug user or a drinker or anything like that. And I think that, you know, you raise a really interesting point. For me, one of the most sort of challenging and tragic parts of this work is that there is a significant number of people who have 
undiagnosed mental health issues that they themselves don't recognize. And so you can have somebody, I mean, I talked yeah. to case managers, you know, people working with these folks all the time, and they'll have somebody, somebody sitting across from them, and it'll be really clear from their behavior that they probably need a mental health evaluation, but they won't go. And you can't make people go. So that's a really big challenge because you're trying to help this person and you and and you know that their their behaviors are going to make it very difficult for them to be able to be successful in any of our housing programs and yet they don't want to they have a fear of doctors they don't think they have a mental health issue they don't want the stigma whatever it is and so we have a lot of folks exactly their mental health issue might be contributing to them not wanting to get an evaluation. So those folks are, to me, the most tragic in the situation because it's so difficult to see what their trajectory is going to be. How can we help somebody who doesn't really want our help? Even having that evaluation is not a clear path to success because it's hard to understand what the mind is going through with mental illness. There's so many different degrees, you know, bipolar, um, depression, anxiety, paranoia, it would, I would, I know I would be hard pressed, and I, I'm not an expert by any means, is diagnosing anyone's mental health issue and then come up with some type of cocktail formula of drugs or inpatient um, reprogramming of the mind or a lobotomy or whatever. I think it's hard to even ask for that evaluation, let alone be successful with that evaluation and transition from a certain place. Um, we, I mean, we have really great – Kitsap Mental Health Services is our primary mental health – public mental health service provider. They're fantastic. They do such great work and with many different situations. And, you know, if you can get somebody in for an evaluation, you know, chances are they are income qualified to receive free mental health services. And, you know, if they want to get on the path, there for a lot of people, there are medications that can help them stabilize also, having a diagnosis makes them eligible for more types of programs Some because there are some programs that are specifically for people who suffer from mental health issues. Um, and then you have to help people who are living outside stay on their medications and keep yeah. going to their therapy appointments and things like that. And that's a really big challenge. Um, I think it just highlights the fact that, you know, housing is the – stable housing is the foundation on which we're able to build our productive lives. We're able to have opportunities to do all kinds of things when we're not just having to struggle for survival every single day. And it's impossible for somebody with a mental health issue to get better if they don't have stable housing. You can't be successful in school if you don't have stable housing. It's hard to hold down a job if you're living out of your car or out of a shelter. You know, so it's it it's the foundation on which we all, you know, it's a basic human need is stability and a roof over our heads and a sense of mental calmness around knowing that we are going to have that on an ongoing basis. Yeah, I see people that kind of pick themselves up and level themselves out and get in a program and you can see a no noticeable difference and then all of a sudden you'll see them completely revert back to their old behavior or even be worse off and I think that's part of not keeping them once you support them and put them in a situation to help, like you say, you know, how do we continue to have them make the meetings, um, come see the people, and, and continue to search out those resources? Do you ever get into a situation where you just want to break down and cry? From something <laughs> you see? Yeah, I mean, I I'm not doing the really hard work. I mean, I think the really hard work is being done by the 
case managers who are or the outreach workers who are doing that direct work. But you know, I I often I often say to my family, you know, it's you know it was a good day. I I cried I cried and I laughed and I sometimes those are tears of happiness that something awesome happened, or sometimes those are tears of frustration because it's such a big problem. You know, it's such a big complicated issue, and if we if it was an easy one, we would have solved it by now, but it's not. And there's, I know so many smart, dedicated, thoughtful, courageous people doing this work in all different ways across the state. Um, it, I think maybe one of the other things that keeps me going is that I feel like I'm part of this really big team and we're all working together on the same thing. And yeah. Yeah. When, do you think we've just, put our head in the sand for too long and let it go for too long. And that's why we've got such a huge homeless population. Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of us look back um, to the 1970s as sort of the genesis of our current challenges with homelessness in the mid-1970s. There was this big move to close our large mental health um congregate living situations. Um, so a lot of big, really big mental hospitals were closed. And I think that at, at the time, there was some thought that this was a good idea, that we should integrate people better into society. But the problem is that there was no provision made for what was going to happen to those people who were moved out of the hospitals. There was no like other housing option provided. And so they were displaced often back to families where they didn't last very long or maybe into some private housing where they didn't last very long. And we've never really figured out since then what to do and how to replace that type of housing. And that's, you know, that's just the mental health issue. I think the other big thing is we have not kept pace with developing units of housing to meet the demand. And so here we are now in a situation where we just simply don't have enough units of supply and demand. We just, the the short supply of housing causes a great demand. Vacancy rates are really low everywhere across the state. That drives rents up. Incomes haven't kept pace. The um, If you look at the, even though Washington state has the highest um minimum wage in the country, even that hasn't really kept pace with the cost of housing. Uh, in our, um, let's see, in our state, excuse me, in our county, just looking at my notes here, in our county, um, the mean amount that a renter earns is about $11.94. Um, minimum wage is $11, but if you look at all the renters and the, the sort of the middle amount that most people make is about $11.94. If you want to be able to afford a, a two-bedroom apartment, you need to be making $19.98 or almost $20, almost twice as much. And so that really just illustrates this, this gap between we haven't seen incomes increasing at the rate that housing costs have been increasing, and that's been going on for decades now. So it's not quite about putting our heads in the sand. I think it's about some challenges with our socioeconomic system and our regulating of wages and the not enough housing being developed. It's a complicated soup of reasons why. Yeah, that's $19 to rent. That's that's rental. Not to get ahead, not to invest, not to buy a house. That's just to have a roof. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Raise those wages. Yeah. Hey, I want you, you, Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say something that you'd said earlier made me think about, um, you know, folks who 
who really struggle. And um, we've been doing a lot of research in our, our state and in our county on this concept of adverse childhood experiences. And adverse childhood experiences is this idea that when things happen in your environment, when you're a child, they fundamentally affect your brain development in a permanent way. And there's a lot of interesting research now that shows that people who have multiple adverse childhood experiences, and this includes things like mental health issues in your home among your, with your parents or drug use in the home or a family breakup or, you know, different kinds of abuse. Um, if you have a certain number of those, you have profound physical and mental impact as an impacts as an adult. So you're more likely to have hypertension and heart disease and mental health issues if you had a bunch of these things happen to you as a child. And it's through no fault of your own. These are not things that you had any control over as a child, but they have these permanent, tangible impacts on your mental and physical health as an adult. And this has created a body of work uh, called trauma-informed care. And trauma-informed care is recognizing that if you've had these adverse childhood experiences, you may not be as good at making executive level decisions. You may not be as good at understanding or forecasting the impact of your ac actions. You may physiologically not be able to make as good, quote unquote, decisions as somebody who didn't have those adverse childhood experiences. And so one of the things that we try to do, or we're, we're working right now on integrating this into our community uh, at um, way that we work with people experiencing homelessness is we try to take that into account with folks. We try to think about whether, and we even can do evaluations for whether people have had these impacts happen to them. But it's fundamentally shifted our mindset about what people's capacities are and um, and how we can help them develop more capacity for what we call resilience. And resilience is the antidote to childhood adverse childhood experiences. It's helping people develop these skills and these capacities that will help them be able to lead more stable lives and have less mental health impacts um, in the future. And there's some really fantastic work being done uh, by a big coalition of organizations across the county that's spearheaded by a group called Kitsap Strong. And they are just profoundly impacting the way that we think about how to help people. That's fascinating. So the old adage that um, adversity makes everyone stronger may not be a true statement. I, I wrestle with that one a lot. I think Sometimes I think adversity, I think adversity of a certain type is helpful. I mean, I certainly feel like that can be helpful, but I think it is unhelpful if it if it's a thing if the adversity is destabilizing and kind of the fundamental things that you need to be, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you if that adversity is fundamentally affecting your your shelter stability, your your food stability, your emotional stability, um I think maybe that's not that kind of adversity is not good. But if you have that those stable things in place and you have a little adversity, I think it can be character building. It can be good. It can help you learn how to bounce back and be resilient. But so many of the folks that we're talking about, their adversity was, you know, either as too young of a child to have any control over how to address it, or it really did fundamentally affect those basic human needs. And that created this situation where their brains developed in a different way. Wow. So um, 
<clears throat> how do we continue to make progress in in this um, endeavor? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's uh, a recognition that we don't have any silver bullets. Um, we have silver buckshot at best. Um, there's no one size fits all, one solution that's going to work for everybody. So we try to have a a toolkit of different options and ideas that are based on what we know has been effective, based on evidence and research that's been done. And so we try to design, a, we try to fund and support an array of different types of programs that are demonstrated to be effective. Um, I think we, my experience has been that we do well when we really try to focus in on having groups of organizations work together on a focused goal. Sometimes people call this a collective impact project um, where you have one goal that even though every organization has its own different missions and operating systems, if you have the same vision and goal in mind, you can have greater impact than if everybody's working kind of without communication and collaboration and cooperation. Um, we're in the process of updating our homeless housing plan right now for 2018. And we're working on laying out very specific action steps. You know, Kitsap County is actually a leader in the state in our uh, efforts to address homelessness. We frequently get um, people coming to our county or talking to us about how we did one piece or one program or, or another. Um, and I want us to keep being a leader in that. And so I'm really excited about updating our homeless housing plan again to kind of chart our course for the next three to five years. And I think that that's going to include things like making our homeless crisis response system, trauma-informed. How do we make sure that we're not re-traumatizing people who are already very vulnerable? Um, I think we're looking at how to prioritize the very most vulnerable people in our community who are experiencing homelessness so that those who are the least able to help themselves get the most help um, from us, from organizations and from the government. Um, I think we're looking at wanting to really focus in on um, providing permanent stable housing for people who have severe persistent mental and behavioral and physical health issues. We just don't have enough of that type of housing. Uh, and and so I, I do feel hopeful about the future. I feel like there's more research, more data, more compassion, more understanding of the challenges and the, the best solutions than we've ever had before. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to continue to be a leader in, in helping Everybody who needs help in our county have a stable place to live. Well, I'd like to help in any way I can, and I think awareness is part of it. How does the community get engaged in these types of efforts? Um, we uh, often get asked this question. I think there's sort of this instinct of, I think on a deep human level, we all want to help people who are less well-off than we are. And when you... Surprise. Well... That's true. Idea on how we solve the homeless problem. And, you know, it goes down this rabbit hole of, you know, let's just wash. <laughs> yeah, wash no, off, I, I hear, I hear that too. And then there's the, the shelters, the programs, the mental illness. Um, you know, how do we expand this communal? Sure. Help. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. And I'm sorry. I kind of took us down a side path there, but no, no. Um, I think, yeah, yeah. And it's, there's, it's, no right answers, right? there's no right answers. And um, 
let me say, I think there's uh, definitely ways that people can get involved. Um, I often uh, get asked this question when I go and talk to, you know, Rotary clubs or, or Lions clubs or Seroptimist groups. Um, what was that word? Seroptimist groups. It's a, I'm familiar with that. Oh, it's an, yeah, it's a, it's another um, group of women who work on helping people in the community, kind of like a Rotary Club or a Kiwanis Club. Okay. Um, so uh, they often ask this question, and I usually respond by saying, I think you kind of need to ask yourself two questions. One, what particularly do you care about around the issue of homelessness? Is it that your heartstrings are pulled by homeless youth? Is it that you... Um, feel like every uh, family should have a place to live? Is it that you um, are concerned about people having enough food to eat? What What is it? Try to hone in on what that thing is that you care about. What's your intent? And then, yeah, what do you care about? And then what do you bring to it? Like, what are your resources? Do you have money to donate? Do you have time? Do you have connections? Do you love to research? Like, what are your particular skills that you can bring to try to help that particular thing that you care about? Um, and then really how you can help boils down to educate yourself and your friends. Talk about the issue. Read books. Go to discussion groups. Um, go, go to the county website and look up. We have data sheets, like tons of data sheets about homelessness in all different parts of the county, affordable housing challenges, like what are the things that are working. So get educated. There's a lot of information out there. Um, there's also a bunch of Facebook pages that are about about homelessness in Kitsap County. So that's another good, good way. Share um, this podcast. Share this podcast. Um, the second thing you can do is um, volunteer. Um, there's tons of organizations that um, are always looking for volunteers. We publish on our Kitsap County page. We have a brochure called How You Can Help People Living Homeless, and it lists a, like 50 or 60 different opportunities for getting involved. What's that um, uh, it's got kind of a long um, URL, um, but I, it's uh, if you go to the Kitsap County government webpage and you go to the Housing and Homelessness Division, um, it'll direct you to that uh, resource. It's a brochure um, called How to Help People Living Homeless. Um, and then the third thing you can do is you can donate. Um, you know, there's always organizations that need your money, or you can donate hygiene items. Some groups like to put together welcome baskets. So when you have a family that's moving out of shelter and into permanent housing and they have nothing, they have no towels or sheets or laundry soap or you know anything like that so put together a welcome basket and donate it to one of the shelters that needs that to help people get back on their feet um, and then the other thing I would say is participate you know talk to your local legislators at the city council level at the county commissioner level at the state level at the federal level tell them that this is an issue that you care about that everybody should have safe stable affordable housing um, they're the ones who are making the big high-level decisions about what resources are available for folks and they listen to their constituents one of the reasons why we got so much great legislation that supports homeless and affordable housing programs passed this year is because we had a lot of citizens like you get involved in talking to the legislators about why this is such an important issue to them. So those are just some broad ideas. Um, I encourage you to talk to your friends and neighbors, talk to the organizations in your community that um, specifically work with affordable housing and homelessness and food. Uh, we have wonderful food banks throughout the county and they always need help. Shout out to Fishline and Helpline House. Absolutely. And yeah. Housing Resources Bainbridge also does a lot of great work around affordable housing for folks. Yeah, I want to talk to you guys next. I'm on the pod. Um, we recently 
did a podcast with Helpline House, and I learned a lot. And then uh, prior to that, a cat named Steve Rhodes came on, and he has founded this Extreme Sobriety. And he collects little gift packs like you're talking about, and Church Mouse and Bon Bon contribute to that. But he, he walks downtown and has two lawn chairs. And he was on the streets for about 20 years. And you can get a welcome basket and some stuff from him if you just sit down and have a conversation with him. And he does this weekly. But he had a real good idea. And Bethany Lutheran Church and Starbucks takes his contributions. But he was saying that uh, boots, the new boots. And one of the, his thought processes was that if you want to reintroduce these people into the working community, like labor ready or odd jobs, they need work boots. And manual labor is not an easy way, but a, a start to get back on your feet. So put some shoes on those feet, and get them back out there to work. What kind of programs are going on to help helpless, or not helpless, but homelessness in reintroducing them to the work society? Well, we have a uh, – before I talk about that, I just want to say the others um, – a couple of other things that are really always desperately needed are socks and then feminine hygiene products. Um, yeah, if you're a woman, if you're a woman, you know those are expensive every month. And if you don't have a lot of money, it's really hard to afford those and you can't really do without them. So um, there's some some great work being done to specifically have women's groups or book clubs or knitting clubs or whatever – um, do feminine hygiene product drives, which they donate to the women's shelters. Those are really, really helpful. Um, we have a really um, wonderful uh, work source program here in Kitsap County, and we have work source folks who specifically work um, with people experiencing homelessness. Um, I think there's also a, a workforce development council, which um, is really looking at the bigger picture of job training um, in sectors that are short on people, um, especially the trades, um, and trying to figure out ways to make sure that we're training people up to be able to take those jobs. Um, I think we could use more job training um, programs. I just... Uh, we the county just put out a big survey um, to the public asking what kinds of things you think would be helpful in the way that we address homelessness. And two of the ideas that came back that I was very intrigued by um, are to start a fair start program here in Kitsap County. This is a really super successful program in Seattle where there's a cafe um, that is uh, staffed by people who have experienced homelessness and they get in transition and they get trained and they learn all kinds of skills, everything from dishwashing to serving to cooking. And then they can take those skills and use them to get a job somewhere else. Great food, supports a great cause. Why don't we start one here in Kitsap County? Um, and then the second one was an idea to have kind of a millionaire's club here. It's a show up and get one day of labor type of program. Um, we don't really have anything like that where you can just go and show up and get some manual labor for the day. Um, I think those would be some interesting ideas to experiment with uh, around helping people make that first step back into employment. Yeah, those are good ideas. One just came to my idea, my mind. I don't know if it's good. I rarely come up with good ideas, but what about, um, you know, we're, we're talking about migrant workers a lot nowadays and, you know, putting up the walls and stuff like that. Um, 
how about farming? You know, we got season coming up. It's it's an opportunity that you could use that type of manual labor, and you could also introduce healthy foods, and you know, get that type of outdoor life that they're used to, and and perhaps that that could be a way to uh, retrain people. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think the trick with with all of these ideas is that people need a stable place to sleep at night so that they can come to work and be able to put in a good day's work. And so ideally they would be um, paired with some kind of a shelter or transitional housing type of program to yeah, get to get people. Yeah, exactly. So some place where they could have stable place to sleep and get some good food and then be ready to to pick up a shovel or um, go to work the next day. Yeah. Yeah, why not? <laughs> a lot of that stuff, I mean, farm to table is a, a huge fad right now. I don't know if it's a fad, but hopefully it's a way we continue to uh, eat. You know, perhaps that we go to farming, taking care of animals, to the kitchen again, you know, and it is all yeah. in, all encompassing. And I think, you know, all of all of the social service programs that we have to help people experiencing homelessness were born out of some people getting together and saying we want to help and here's an idea for how to help people. And so I'm always in favor of new organizations springing up to try to come up with new solutions. Um, I hope most of you have heard of the Coffee Oasis, fantastic organization in our county that helps homeless youth. Um, And yeah, they, they're our primary homeless youth provider. They, started as a small um, faith-based organization, I think 15 years, 20 years ago now. Um, they have their, they have a business model where they operate coffee shops throughout the county. And those are, so. maybe, I know they have one in Paulsbo, couple in Port Orchard, Bremerton. They're just working on opening them up in Kingston. And they function as a way to raise money to help support their programs for homeless youth, but they also um, are drop-in centers for youth. They provide job training as baristas. They've expanded to do partnerships with about 70 different other uh, companies to provide internships for youth who are moving out of homelessness. They do outreach in most of the schools in North Kitsap and Central and South Kitsap. I don't know if they have folks at Bainbridge or not, but they definitely do have a lot of youth outreach folks in the schools. Um, They have a youth overnight shelter. Um, They have a host home program where they have households sort of sponsor or host a, a a youth for a couple of months. Um, they're just doing fantastic work and we're incredibly lucky to have them here in Kitsap County. And I just brought them up because I remember when they were a fledgling organization that was just trying to figure out what they could do to help homeless youth. They got together, tried a program out with the coffee shops, got some grants and have just expanded like crazy from then, from there. And uh, I just encourage any organization that any group of people who sees a problem and has a solution to get get together and start working on it, start a fair start program, start a farm worker program, start a labor ready, you know, a millionaires day laborer program, whatever it is that uh, floats your boat. You're the ones who are going to be part of the solution. Do you happen to know their website? I'm thinking it's probably coffeeoasis.com, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, I... Coffee Oasis. This is ringing a bell for for me somehow i don't know why but i want to say that they also use reused material and they taught the kids how to actually actually build the coffee shop 
that's very possible. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. that's a cool movement for sure. They just do incredible things, just incredible work. And uh, we're, we're uh, excited to see what they do. Oh, they, I think they just also launched a 24-hour youth crisis hotline uh, just in the last few months. Yeah. And they work with not just youth who are experiencing homelessness, but youth who are in unstable living situations at home, um, youth who were, you know, questioning sexuality or having challenges with being accepted or don't understand, you know, don't really feel like they fit in in school. Um, kids, there's a shocking number of youth being sexually exploited. Um, there's another organization called Scarlet Road that tries to help people um, get out of being sexually exploited. You would like to think that that wouldn't happen in Kitsap County, but I'm sad to say there is actually quite a lot happening here in Kitsap County. So um, another two other organizations that would be great to get involved in if you want to volunteer. They're always looking for for volunteers and board members. Yeah, wow. It's a lot out there. I mean, next time you're sitting on your ass watching TV doing nothing, you know, I got a couple jobs for you. <laughs> and we're incredibly, I mean, I keep saying this, but it's so true. We we really are fortunate to have a really large array of social service organizations that are doing a lot of, of, of fantastic work. And one of the joys of my job is to get to see what all these organizations are doing and to try to knit together some of their efforts so that they can be more cooperative and collaborative and, and, and have even greater impact in the community. Well, I really appreciate how diverse your job is and, and how many, you know, irons you have in the fire. And that's cool that you're connected and collaborating with so many organizations and you have so many thoughts, you know, it's, it's not a solution, but it's, a, it's a huge start. And, um, you know, having this conversation with you right now is introducing people to a different mindset, I hope, as well. Hey, you grew up on Bainbridge Island um, and got off the rock. Um, <laughs> I lived here for a lot of my life, but yeah. <laughs> how many homeless people do you figure are here? How do you quantify homelessness? And last part of that question would be, could you see a shelter here on the island? Lots of questions. Um, That's what I do. Yeah, I know. You're good. You're good. You're good at asking questions. I love it. Um, so let me back up a little bit and say that one of the centerpieces of our homeless crisis response system, and I say that very intentionally, we think of our homeless crisis response system as first responders to the crisis of homelessness, kind of like the fantastic Bainbridge Island Fire Department um, who responds when there's a fire. Our homeless crisis response system is there to respond when somebody is having the crisis of homelessness. Um, the centerpiece of our homeless crisis response system is what's called a coordinated entry system. And a coordinated entry system is a single place where anybody who's experiencing homelessness or housing instability can go and get a brief intake, an assessment of their needs, and then a referral out to the programs and services that they are specifically eligible for. It used to be that you had to go door to door to a dozen different organizations and try to figure out if you were eligible and get on their waiting lists. And it was just a huge amount of work um, for people who were already experiencing a crisis. And so we, about six years ago, completely redesigned our system um, to have this coordinated entry system as well. It's like a single front door for everybody who has housing issues. In Kitsap County, it's called the Housing Solutions Center, and um, it's operated by Kitsap Community Resources. The Housing Solutions Center has 
offices in Bremerton, Port Orchard, Paulsbow at North Kitsap Fish Line. And then last year they added somebody, I think one day a week on Bainbridge Island as well at Helpline House. And so anybody who is experiencing homelessness or housing instability can go to one of these offices and get the same service and the access to the same resources. We also, when somebody comes in, we also collect a bunch of information about that person um, and we enter it into this really giant database. So we have a ton of information about demographics of people experiencing homelessness and housing instability. And we also kind of track what happens to that person as they get enrolled in programs and increase their income and then become self-sufficient, hopefully. Um, So um, I do have a little bit of information about the number of people on Bainbridge Island last year who were coming to the Housing Solutions Center saying, I need help with housing. Um, Last year, uh, 116 households came to the Housing Solutions Center on Bainbridge and said, I need help. (coughs) Excuse me. And that made up almost 200 individuals. So um, I don't know if that is really enough to warrant having a shelter all on its own. Um, But We definitely need to have a bigger array of shelter services available because right now the only shelter uh, that we have are all the shelters that we have operating are in Bremerton. Uh, So we were talking about whether it would make sense to have a shelter on Bainbridge Island. And, um, you know, we we know that there were about 200 people who needed help with housing last year on that came to the office on Bainbridge Island to get assistance. Is that like food service? uh, Housing specifically. specifically. They needed housing assistance, yeah. And some of those folks were people who were living outside who needed help, and some of those folks were really worried about getting displaced from their current housing because their rents were getting increased or their lease was up and they didn't have another place to go, a variety of different reasons. Um, so I don't know if Bainbridge has the volume of people experiencing homelessness that would make it really economical to operate a shelter. We currently, all of our shelters are uh, located in Bremerton, and um, that does make it really difficult for people in other parts of the county who need a shelter but don't want to leave their community. I mean, most people who are experiencing homelessness would prefer to stay in their place where they have some connection, um, family, friends often a job, um, comfort with the, their their environment. And so I think it would, yeah, support system, yeah. So I think it would make sense to have shelters in North Kitsap, probably in Paul's or Kingston area. And then it would be great to have a shelter uh, down in Port Orchard in the South Kitsap part of the, part of the county as well. Um, that wouldn't be ideal for people in Bainbridge who are struggling, but it would be a lot better than, than Bremerton. Um, I got an idea of Malls are kind of getting out. Yeah. Shelter in the mall. I think, you know, the other ideas that that different communities uh, around the state are experimenting with, um, maybe some of you have heard about the Block Project in Seattle. Um, This is an interesting idea to have just individual households put a small, tiny house in their backyard that um, is available to somebody who needs low-cost housing. You know, definitely sort of those smaller, one-off, small units of housing scattered around, I think, could be really helpful. There's some um, 
place uh, communities where churches are hosting one or two families. I don't know if you remember back in the day there was the One Church, One Family initiative. Um, I think that originally started um, when we were seeing an influx of Vietnamese refugees and churches kind of adopted different Vietnamese families. And then that came up again with Hurricane Katrina. A lot of the churches and faith-based organizations stepped up and sort of sponsored a family. So there's some places that are kind of thinking about what if we could get churches to sponsor a family experiencing homelessness. Maybe that would be a way to really deal with it on a one-to-one, person-to-person, community-to-community base basis instead of having everybody have to go to Bremerton to to get assistance. Maybe we could just offer assistance to our friends and neighbors. If you have an idea, stick it out there on um, the Bystander Facebook page or comment on the notes of this particular podcast and hey, hopefully we'll find a gem of an idea from somebody that's out there listening. Um, hard work, good work. Hard work, good work. I like that. Kirsten Joel, Washington Department of Commerce and Homeless oh. Coordinator for King County and Human Services. Oh wait, no wait, wait. You got you got to get that right. You got to get that right. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry for not King County. What's up, County? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I know I work for so I work for Kitsap County Department of Human Services and the Housing and Homelessness uh, Program division. Um, I do also serve as the chair of the Governor State Advisory Council on Homelessness, which is administered through the Department of Commerce. All right. Give a shout out to Jay Inslee. I will. Tell him to come on my podcast. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, future president. Huh? Yeah, he's a, he's a big supporter of this issue. He cares deeply about it. I've been to a couple of uh, gatherings and meetings with him where he's really has a heart for people who don't have housing and a heart for people who are in extreme poverty. So we're really lucky to have him um, as our government leader for the state. Yeah, and environmental issues too. I, I appreciate the job he does. Well, thank you so much. You've been listening to The Bystander. I wish you all the luck in the future. I- Keep doing that hard work, that good work. I love it. Kirsten Jewell. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.